This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of ulnar tunnel syndrome from the hand section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Ulnar tunnel syndrome is a compressive neuropathy of the ulnar nerve at the level of the wrist, specifically Guillain's canal, which is most commonly due to a ganglion cyst. Diagnosis can be made clinically with paresthesias of the small and ring finger with intrinsic weakness with a tenel sign over Guillain's canal. Treatment involves a course of conservative management with splinting and surgical decompression in the presence of a compressive lesion, for example a ganglion, or continued symptoms. Now let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, the incidence of ulnar tunnel syndrome is less common than cubital tunnel syndrome. Risk factors for ulnar tunnel syndrome includes being a cyclist, therefore this condition is also known as handlebar palsy. With respect to the pathoanatomy, causes of compression include a ganglion cyst, and 80% of these are of non-traumatic causes. Other causes of compression include lipomas, repetitive trauma, ulnar artery thrombosis or aneurysm, hook of hamate fracture or non-union, pisiform dislocation, inflammatory arthritis, fibrous band muscle or bony anomaly, congenital bands, palmaris brevis hypertrophy, and idiopathic causes. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. Specifically, we'll talk about Guillain's canal, its course, its contents, as well as boundaries and zones. As far as the course of Guillain's canal, it's approximately 4 centimeters long. It begins at the proximal extent of the transverse carpal ligament and ends at the aponeurotic arch of the hypothenar muscles. As far as the contents of Guillain's canal, the ulnar nerve bifurcates into the superficial sensory and deep motor branches. As far as the boundaries of Guillain's canal, the floor is the transverse carpal ligament and the hypothenar muscles. The roof is the volar carpal ligament. The ulnar border is the pisiform and pisohamate ligament and the abductor digiti minimi muscle belly. And finally, the radial border is the hook of the hamate. So again, the floor of Guillain's canal is the transverse carpal ligament and the hypothenar muscles. The roof of Guillain's canal is the volar carpal ligament. The ulnar border is the pisiform and the pisohamate ligament, as well as the abductor digiti minimi muscle belly. And finally, the radial border of Guillain's canal is the hook of the hamate. The zones of Guillain's canal are divided into three zones. Zone 1 is proximal to the bifurcation of the nerve, and common causes of compression at zone 1 are ganglia and hook of hamate fractures. Symptoms include mixed motor and sensory symptoms. Zone 2 of Guillain's canal surrounds the deep motor branch. Common causes of compression at zone 2 also include ganglia and hook of hamate fractures. However, symptoms in zone 2 are motor only. Zone 3 surrounds the superficial sensory branch, and common causes of compression include ulnar artery thrombosis or aneurysm, and the symptoms are sensory only. The deep branch of the ulnar nerve innervates all of the interosseous muscles and the third and fourth lumbricals. The deep branch of the ulnar nerve innervates the hypothenar muscles, the adductor pollicis, and the medial or deep head of the flexor pollicis brevis, or the FPB. As far as the classification, presentation varies based on the location of compression within Guillain's canal and may be motor only, sensory only, or mixed motor and sensory. As far as the presentation of ulnar tunnel syndrome, presentation varies based on location of compression within Guillain's canal and may be pure motor, pure sensory, or mixed motor and sensory. Symptoms may include pain and paresthesias in the ulnar 1 to 1.5 digits, 
and you may also see weakness to the intrinsics, ring, and small finger digital flexion or thumb adduction. On physical exam, inspection and palpation may show clawing of the ring and little fingers. This is caused from loss of the intrinsics flexing the MCPs and extending the IP joints. Finally, the Allen test helps diagnose ulnar artery thrombosis. You should conduct a thorough neurovascular exam as ulnar nerve palsy results in paralysis of the intrinsic muscles, that is specifically the adductor pollicis, the deep head of the flexor pollicis brevis, the interossei, and lumbricals 4 and 5. Neurovascular exam may also reveal a weakened grasp from loss of MP joint flexion power. It may also reveal weak pinch from loss of thumb adduction, and keep in mind that as much as 70% of pinch strength is lost. It's important to remember Froman's sign, which is IP flexion compensating for loss of thumb adduction when attempting to hold a piece of paper. This is characterized by loss of MCP flexion and adduction by the adductor pollicis, which is innervated by the ulnar nerve. You will also see compensatory IP hyperflexion by the FPL, which is innervated by the AIN. Gene sign is a compensatory thumb MCP hyperextension and thumb adduction by the EPL, which is innervated by the radial nerve. This compensates for loss of IP extension and thumb adduction by the adductor pollicis, which is innervated by the ulnar nerve. Finally, you may find a positive Wartenberg sign in these patients, which is abduction posturing of the little finger. As far as imaging, radiographs are useful to evaluate hook of hamate fractures. A CT scan is also useful to evaluate for hook of hamate fractures. An MRI is useful to evaluate for a ganglion cyst. And keep in mind that a gradient echo MRI will also show an ulnar artery aneurysm. Finally, a Doppler ultrasound or arteriogram is useful to diagnose ulnar artery thrombosis and aneurysm. Other studies to mention include nerve conduction studies and EMG, which is helpful in establishing a diagnosis as well as prognosis. As far as the threshold for diagnosis, conduction velocity must be less than 50 meters per second across the elbow, and you will also find low amplitudes of sensory nerve action potentials and compound muscle action potentials. As far as the differential, it's important to differentiate ulnar tunnel syndrome from cubital tunnel syndrome. Cubital tunnel demonstrates less clawing, sensory deficit to the dorsum of the hand, a motor deficit to the ulnar innervated extrinsic muscles, tenel sign at the elbow, and a positive elbow flexion test. Treatment of ulnar tunnel syndrome can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes activity modification. This is indicated as a first line of treatment when symptoms are mild. Operative options include local decompression, tendon transfers, and carpal tunnel release. Local decompression is indicated for severe symptoms that have failed non-operative treatment. Tendon transfers are indicated for correction of clawed fingers, loss of power pinch, and a positive Wartenberg sign, which again is abduction of the small finger. A carpal tunnel release is indicated in patients diagnosed with both ulnar tunnel syndrome and carpal tunnel syndrome. Now let's go over the surgical techniques for a local surgical decompression and tendon transfers in a bit more detail. In a local surgical decompression, you will release the hypothenar muscle origin, decompress ganglion cysts, resect the hook of the hamate, vascular treatment of ulnar artery thrombosis, and explore as well as release all three zones in Guillain's canal. As far as tendon transfers in the setting of correcting claw fingers, possible grafts include the ECRL, ECRB, and palmaris longus. 
The tendons must pass volar to the transverse metacarpal ligament in order to flex the proximal phalanx. You will attach with either a two- or four-tailed graft to the A2 pulley of the ring and small fingers. It's important to restore power pinch, and you can do this using a Smith transfer using the ECRB or FDS of the ring finger. Finally, you must restore adduction of the small finger, and to do this, you will transfer the ulnar insertion of the EDM to the A1 pulley or radial collateral ligament of the small finger. Complications to mention of ulnar tunnel syndrome is recurrence. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, a 55-year-old patient presents with numbness and tingling in the right small and ring fingers and associated hand weakness. On examination, there is decreased sensation of the volar, ulnar, and radial aspect of the small finger and the volar and ulnar aspect of the ring finger, but the sensation on the dorsum of the hand is preserved. Symptoms are reproduced with pressure over the wrist during flexion. There is weakness of finger adduction and grip strength, but flexor digitorum profundus strength of the ring and small finger remains preserved. The patient denies any previous trauma to the right hand or wrist. What study would most likely identify the causative lesion? And the choices are 1. MRI of the cervical spine, 2. EMG slash nerve conduction velocity of the upper extremity, 3. MRI of the wrist, 4. Carpal tunnel view radiographs, and 5. CT and MRI of the elbow. The correct answer to this question is 3. MRI of the wrist. So the patient in the question stem is presenting with ulnar neuropathy consistent with ulnar tunnel syndrome. The most common cause of compression is a ganglion cyst in Guillain's canal, which would be visualized on an MRI of the wrist. Ulnar tunnel syndrome is due to compression of the ulnar nerve at Guillain's canal and can lead to numbness and tingling in the ring and small finger without the involvement of the dorsal ulnar hand. Three zones of compression have been described with zone 1 leading to both motor and sensory deficits, zone 2 leading to only motor deficits, and zone 3 leading to only sensory deficits. The presence of a ganglion cyst in Guillain's canal is the most common cause of ulnar tunnel syndrome and accounts for 80% of cases. Magnetic resonance imaging will demonstrate a T2 hyperintense lesion in Guillain's canal in these cases. Ulnar tunnel syndrome results in motor weakness of the intrinsic muscles of the hand without affecting the ulnar nerve innervated flexor digitorum profundus muscle bellies of the ring and small finger. Moving on to the next question. A 26-year-old male construction worker presents with a six-month history of paresthesias in the small and ring fingers. Physical examination reveals weakness of the first dorsal interosseous muscle. A T2 sequence on an axial cut of an MRI demonstrates a ganglion cyst within Guillain's canal. Which additional finding is characteristic of this pathology? And the choices are 1. Abnormal sensation over the dorsal ulnar hand. 2. Wartenberg syndrome. 3. Inability to flex the thumb interphalangeal joint without flexing the distal IP joint of the index finger. 4. Thumb and index finger IP joint flexion when attempting to pinch a piece of paper. And 5. Inability to flex both the thumb IP joint and the index finger IP joint. The correct answer to this question is 4. Thumb and index finger IP joint flexion when attempting to pinch a piece of paper. 
So the patient has a ganglion cyst within Guillain's canal, resulting in compressive ulnar neuropathy. As a result, distal motor function is impaired, leading to a positive Froman sign or obligatory thumb and index finger IP joint flexion to compensate for weakness of the adductor pollicis. Guillain's canal is bordered by the transverse carpal ligament, which makes up the floor, the volar carpal ligament, which makes up the roof, the pisiform and abductor digiti minimi muscle ulnarly, and the hook of the hamate radially. Guillain's canal is comprised of three zones. Zone 1 is proximal to the bifurcation of the ulnar nerve, and a mass here may cause both motor and sensory abnormalities to the volar aspect of the fourth and fifth digits. Zone 2 surrounds the deep motor branch and will cause isolated motor symptoms. Lastly, zone 3 is further distal, surrounding the superficial sensory branch, in which compression would only cause the aforementioned volar sensory symptoms. A cyst in Guillain's canal may cause motor, sensory, or mixed motor sensory ulnar nerve symptoms. Moving on to the next question. A 38-year-old female presents with 8 months of gradual weakness of her right hand. She denies paresthesias, numbness, and pain in the right upper extremity. She has compensatory thumb interphalangeal flexion during key pinch and intact two-point discrimination. She has a negative tenel sign at the wrist and elbow. Electromyography or EMG shows normal sensory conduction velocities but delayed motor conduction to the first dorsal interosseous muscle. A T2 fat saturation MRI shows a well-circumscribed lesion with homogeneous fluid signal intensity at Guillain's canal compressing the ulnar nerve. A post-contrast T1 fat saturation MRI shows rim enhancement consistent with the cyst and compression of the ulnar nerve. A longitudinal ultrasound view of an anechoic, well-defined structure is consistent with the cyst. What is the next best step? And the choices are 1. Biopsy of the mass. 2. Cyst excision. 3. MRI of the cervical spine. 4. Excision of the hook of the hamate and 5, cubital tunnel release. The correct answer to this question is 2, cystic scission. So the patient has pure motor symptoms from ulnar nerve compression by a ganglion cyst at Guillain's canal. The next best treatment is excision of the ganglion cyst. To quickly review, atraumatic compression of the ulnar nerve at Guillain's canal is caused by a ganglion cyst 80% of the time. Compression may present with mixed motor and sensory or pure motor symptoms. With purely motor compression, the deep branch of the ulnar nerve is affected, resulting in the weakness of the adductor pollicis. Subsequent loss of metacarpophalangeal flexion and adduction leads to a positive Froman sign with compensatory thumb IP flexion. Pure motor compression will result in normal sensory examination and intact two-point discrimination as sensory branches are unaffected. EMG will localize decreased velocities at the wrist. When neurologic symptoms are present, cystic scission is recommended. Ganglion cysts in this location often arise from the piezohamate joint, and excision of the stalk is important to prevent recurrence. And moving on to the final question. A 72-year-old female complains of progressive weakness with grasp and key pinch in her left hand. Physical exam of the hand is significant for decreased sensation on the volar aspect of the fourth and fifth digits. Dorsal sensation throughout the hand is normal. 
Clinical exam shows a positive Froman sign, where the FPL is used to substitute for the weakened adductor pollicis, resulting in flexion of the thumb at the interphalangeal joint and MCP joint hyperextension. What is the most likely cause of compression? And the choices are 1. Accessory head of the FPL. 2. Flexor carpi ulnaris. 3. Osborne's ligament. 4. Ganglion within Guillain's canal and 5, Anconius epitrochlearis. The correct answer to this question is 4, ganglion within Guillain's canal. So compression of the ulnar nerve within Guillain's canal, termed ulnar tunnel syndrome, is most commonly caused by a ganglion cyst. A lack of dorsal ulnar sensory deficit helps differentiate entrapment here from at the elbow because the dorsal ulnar cutaneous nerve branches proximal to Guillain's canal. Remember again that Froman sign is when the FPL is used to substitute for the weakened adductor pollicis, resulting in flexion of the thumb at the interphalangeal joint and MCP joint hyperextension. The AIN can be compressed by the accessory head of the FPL, otherwise known as Ganser's muscle, which results in loss of FPL, index FDP, and pronator quadratus motor function and no sensory deficits. Ulnar nerve compression at Osborne's ligament, the two heads of the FCU, or by the Anconius epitrochlearis, will classically result in volar and dorsal ulnar sensory loss of the affected hand. That's all for this review about ulnar tunnel syndrome. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.